Friday evening. I hope you were able to be here. It was a, a wondrous time. It was a dark time. And we examined what we called the darkness of death. The darkness of judgment that Christ endured on the cross on behalf of all who would believe in Him. Well, this morning we'd like to examine the light of resurrection. And I'd have you turn with me once again to Mark 16. That was our scripture reading this morning. I wanted to get it really implanted in your mind. While you're finding Mark 16, there's an interesting incident that happened just a few years ago. In Kenya, a 24-year-old man accidentally swallowed insecticide. And he was very quickly pronounced dead by doctors. They put his body in the local morgue. Fifteen hours later, coincidentally, as several staff happened to be walking by his body, he woke up and sat up. Now, you would have thought that, they, that the staff would have been ecstatic and sat there trying to help him. Instead of trying to help him, they ran out of the building screaming wildly. I think that's a pretty natural reaction to an event that doesn't register in our human experience. Death is the great unknown. It is the question that every one of us must answer. What happens then? Well, in our text this morning, Mark 16, we see an account of what happened immediately following the resurrection of Christ. And you would expect words like rejoicing and elation and exaltation and thrill and delight. Instead... Here are the words that are used. They were alarmed. They were astonished. They were trembling. They fled from the tomb. In the final phrase in our text, they were afraid. What's even more amazing, what's even more astonishing, is that Jesus predicted that this would happen. But no one really took him seriously. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The very next chapter, Mark 9, 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And just to make certain that he was clear, The next chapter, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. And after three days, He will rise. Without the resurrection of Christ... There is no good news of salvation. The work of redemption would be incomplete. Now, many have questioned the resurrection throughout time. But just to be clear, the Gospels contain abundant witnesses to the resurrection. The book of Acts is the story of the apostles' proclamation of the resurrection. And in fact, in every major sermon in the book of Acts, the death and resurrection of Christ are a central feature. All of the New Testament epistles depend entirely on a living, reigning Savior who is now exalted at the right hand of the Father as the head of the church. In the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, it it shows continually our risen Savior in even more glory than we ever saw Him in the Gospels. He predicts His second coming, that He will conquer His enemies and He will reign over the earth. 
So you, you can't logically say, I believe the Bible, just not the resurrection. You can't say that logically. Jesus made a radical, bold, brash statement. And if it isn't true, then Jesus was the most arrogant man who walked the earth. But if it is true, every human being must sit up, we must take notice, and very, very, very carefully consider Jesus Christ. Here's the statement that he made. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is to have one's sins forgiven, to be in right standing before God. There are not many ways to God. There are not two ways to God. There is one way to God, and that is through Christ and Christ alone. And if this is true, and it is, there are questions that you must answer. Questions that you must be certain. You have to be certain that you're in the company of those who come to the Father. There is only one way. And not believing that won't make it less true. I want to suggest three questions you must answer. We'll get to them in just a bit. First, I'd like to just examine our text this morning. Mark 16, I'm going to read it again. It's short. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. In all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is not a single verse that actually records the resurrection of Christ. It's an event reserved for the halls of heaven only. It's too glorious. It's too unique to even put in words. Apparently, it is, a, it is a private moment between the Father and the Son as the Son is raised to life and raised to victory. We see what happened before and we see immediately after. And all four Gospels emphasize different aspects of the resurrection. Every few years, I like to preach through all four Gospels at the same time on Resurrection Sunday just to kind of give us a flavor for that. But this morning, rather than harmonizing all four, I want to focus specifically on what the Holy Spirit inspired in Mark. Mark compresses a number of events. It's the shortest Gospel. And he gives a brief summary of what's key for his purpose. And what was the purpose of the Gospel of Mark? It is to demonstrate without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that Christ has called mankind to follow after him. The narrative here focuses on these three women. It's the same three women Mark mentions watch the crucifixion of Christ from a distance in chapter 15, verse 40. 
Interestingly, the women who are faithfully following Jesus and believing him, helping support his ministry, they're not even mentioned until the very end of the gospel. But what we see here is they've been with him all along. Suddenly, they're the main characters, and they're grieved by the death of Christ. They've followed him. They've ministered to, they've been ministered to by him. They've believed in him. They've, they've helped him in the physical sense of, of providing support. He brought spiritual hope to them. He brought something that the law could never give. He brought hope of forgiveness of sin, fellowship with God through Christ. But he died. And we know from this text that it shattered all of their hopes. Verse 1 begins, when the Sabbath was passed. This would be Saturday evening, right after sunset. That's the official end of Sabbath. We know they went to the tomb early the next morning. But when Sabbath was passed that Saturday evening, as soon as the sun went down, the shops in Jerusalem would open again for a few hours of business. As soon as Sabbath was officially over, it was a way to get a little bit of business in. And so that evening, they went and bought spices. These would be aromatic oils, sweet-smelling spices. This was not for embalming. The Jews didn't embalm, generally speaking. But it was for putting fragrant ointments on the external, on the wrappings of the body. It was an expression of their love. It was extremely unusual to do this after a couple of days after burial, but they couldn't do it on the Sabbath. The spices were there to offset the odor of decay, although we know from Psalm 16.10 that Jesus' body would never decay. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. But what's very clear from this text is that these women had no expectation of resurrection. They didn't expect that at all. They spent a lot of money on these spices. They were expensive. All the Gospels... Stressed the early hour. It was right at sunrise. The first moment they could see enough to anoint Jesus' body with the spices. But they had a problem. Who will roll away the stone? A a tomb stone was rolled easily into place on on a track. It it went downhill, so to speak. Rolling it back was quite a different task altogether. These stones could weigh between one and three tons. And so a few women were not going to roll it away. They hadn't thought to ask some men to come with them to roll away the stone. They didn't know that the chief priests and the Pharisees, by the way, had gone to Pontius Pilate to request that the tomb be sealed. And what would have been? It would have been some sort of rope uh, that, was, that maybe had an official off-limit sign placed there by Pontius Pilate. They wouldn't have known that Pilate had assigned a guard of soldiers to stand watch at the tomb. And so they walked in grief with their heads down. They're, they're somber. They're sad in their mood. They're going toward the garden tomb where Jesus was buried. Verse 4, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. The size of the stone is emphasized to say that, that it didn't just happen to roll back. It, it wasn't an accident. It had to be rolled back. Now, the stone, just to be clear, was not rolled back to let Jesus out. It was to let people in, to see that he wasn't there. Matthew 28 tells us that an angel had come, accompanied by a great earthquake, and and rolled the stone away. The the guards had fainted like little girls, apparently, at that. 
because we could show from Matthew 28 that this was not some angel taking the stone and grunting and going, oh, and trying to barely move it. This was an angel coming and taking that stone and slam dunking it off to the side. I would have fainted too. These women now, they entered the tomb. Verse 5, it was spacious. It was intended as a family tomb, able to hold a number of bodies on the shelves cut into the stone. And the first thing that happened is they had the wits scared out of them. They were alarmed. This is a very strong verb. It means a strong feeling of anxiety, of awe, of agitation. And they saw a young man. It's very clearly an angel. No young man ever wore white. But Mark simply describes him as the women saw him. And the angel came as the divine messenger. It's very important that the presence of the angel here tells us something. It tells us that that we're emphasizing the miraculous nature of the resurrection. Some withhold to what is called the swoon theory, that somehow Jesus endured an entire night of suffering, that he uh, was on a cross for six hours, that he had his side stabbed and the pericardium of his heart uh, uh, burst and blood and water coming out, and that he died and didn't breathe for a few days, and all of a sudden in a tomb with no air, he got up and rolled the stone away by himself and left. Clearly that's not the case. The angel here, and we're going to nail this hard, is wearing white. He's wearing white. In the Bible, the color white is almost always mentioned in the context of eschatology, of end times, indicating the the dazzling character of the glory of those who wear white garments. In the New Testament, white is the primary color of heaven. In Matthew 17, Jesus is transfigured, a glimpse of his true glory. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. When Jesus was ascending into heaven, the apostles were watching, and they had two visitors from heaven. Acts 1.10 says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Jesus, as he currently is in all of his glory, He's described in Revelation 1.14, the hairs of his head are white, like white wool, like snow. White is clearly the primary color of heaven, the perfect dazzling character of those wearing the color. What does that have to do with us? In the Bible, white is the color of purity. It's the color of holiness, of perfection, the moral and righteous ability to stand clean before a holy God. Jesus warned the church in Sardis in Revelation 3 that they only had a few actual true believers in the church. The rest were religious frauds. And he said to them in Revelation 3 verse 4, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, for they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They've been made holy. They've been sanctified. They've been set apart. They've been cleansed. To the nearly dead church of Laodicea, he advised them, Quote, buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness not be revealed. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, we get a vision of the church of Jesus Christ pictured as 24 mighty elders and they're clothed in white garments. In Revelation 6, 11, new converts who will be martyred during the great tribulation there in heaven and given to each of them was a white robe. 
And in Revelation 19, 14, when all the saved of the church age are gathered together in heaven, ready to come back to the earth with Christ, when he comes once again, they're called the armies of heaven. Revelation 19, 14 says, and the armies of heaven, that's you, that's me, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. You cannot get away from this. White is clearly symbolic of purity, of holiness, of complete and total innocence and sinlessness before holy God. God will not look upon or fellowship with sin or with sinners. In other words, white is symbolic of the holiness of God and that is his standard for us. So the color white here is extremely important because we have a problem. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. The only thing white that you have, Matthew 23.27, says that you are whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. That's the only white thing we brought to the table. Whitewashed tombs. Fakeness, falseness, religiosity. In order to be presentable before God, in order to fellowship with Him, to not rightfully be judged guilty of violating God's perfect standard, you must be reconciled to God. You must be made white as snow, so to speak. So there must be a way to be reconciled. It means to settle accounts. It means to be made right with the Lord. The problem is, you don't have anything God wants. You have nothing good to offer Him. A a dirty garment doesn't get cleaner by spray painting it with white paint. The garment itself must be clean. Isaiah 64 says that righteous deeds that you do, attempts at pleasing God, they're like a filthy garment. They're disgusting to the Lord. And so biblically, you cannot reconcile yourself to God. You have nothing to offer. Nothing at all. I said we would ask three questions. I'd like to ask the first one now. The first question you must answer is, who will reconcile you to God? Who will reconcile you to God? And so these women, they enter the tomb and they see an angel and they're terrified. Verse 6, the angel says, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. This angel was given insight into precisely how they were feeling The emptiness of the tomb doesn't tell the whole story by itself, so the angel is there to tell the story in words. And you'll notice because of their fear, the angel here is giving small, easy-to-digest, concrete pieces of information to help them begin to grasp the reality of what has happened. The reality is, Jesus of Nazareth, the same Jesus who was crucified, there's a clear identification. He is risen, he is not here, a short, clear understanding, revelation of what has happened and see the place where they laid him, pointing out the evidence of what he's saying. And this is the foundation of the gospel in a nutshell. Mark 16, 6 and 7, he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. This is the gospel. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. His death. See the place where they laid him, his burial. He is risen. He is not here, his resurrection. 
That is the gospel in a nutshell. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The revelation they received from this angel is now the crystallization point of their faith. They came to anoint a dead body, but now they can go try to get a refund on those spices because they don't need them. And the women receive a command from the angel, but go, in verse 7, it's a strong command. Their knowledge of the truth now required action from them. Their faithfulness had qualified them as the very first to hear the good news of the resurrection and to be the first to tell the disciples. He said, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. In in Mark 14, verse 28, Jesus said this, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. They didn't get it at that time. And now the angel reminds them, remember, he said that. It's sort of a very kind, I told you so. This is not just confined to the 11 disciples. The women were to go as well. And there was a special prearranged meeting in Galilee, in the northern province of the area of Palestine, Israel. What happened at this meeting? Well, what happened was that Jesus appeared to many people. 25 years later, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Why would he say that? In other words, if you want to check out whether or not Jesus really was raised from the dead, there are hundreds of people who saw him. And at that meeting, Jesus said something that will be familiar to you. He said, and this is recorded in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When Jesus laid down his life, what happened to his flock? They scattered. Now that he is raised from the dead, he's regathering them. Regathering them specifically in Galilee. He's regathering them as a new people who will take up their cross, who will follow Christ and proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what did these precious, terrified women do when they received these instructions from the angel? Did they say, yes, sir, we will, we will carry this out. Absolutely, we'll walk forth and we'll do wondrous things. Nope. Verse 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb. We get our word fugitive. It's to run as fast as you can. They didn't sit there and and say, hey, what is it like being an angel? That's pretty cool. How did you get here? How heavy was that stone? When did Jesus actually know? They were gone. They were out of there. It was like a cartoon where you just see the dust cloud behind them. Why? Because trembling and astonishment had seized them. This is a, these are imperfect verbs. It means it's holding on to them. It's not a momentary startle. It's a continual gripping of emotion. They were terrified at a high level and they stayed there. Realizing the profound reality of what had been declared to them, Matthew 28, 8 also tells us that at the same time that they were terrified and astonished, they were also filled with great joy and ecstasy. I I don't know how you do that. How are you terrified and overjoyed at the same time? I can only do one of those at a time. 
But that's what the resurrection of Christ did for them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They didn't start telling everyone who were already rising for the day. They waited to tell the disciples. You see, there's no category of human experience that we can put this in to conveniently place the resurrection of Christ. When God intervenes in history at this level, we have trouble processing it. The fear that they have, this is and has been the consistent response to the disclosure of the revelation of God in Christ. And we see this just in Mark alone. Mark 4.41, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark 5.15, They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Mark 5.33, But the women, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. When Peter, James, and John saw Christ's transfiguration recorded in Mark chapter 9, verse 6, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. The account of the women at the tomb is soul-shaking, and our response should be the same. Jesus is not our buddy. He is not our friend. He is not our co-pilot. He is somebody that in Scripture has inspired terror and fear. And if you know Him joy. Jesus Christ cannot simply be thought about or considered intellectually. You cannot simply say, I think I'll make an objective decision as to whether or not to follow him. Like saying, would I rather buy a blue shirt or a red shirt? When Jesus was on earth, he said that someday he would judge all mankind and Yeah, yeah, sure, you might say. But now, when you see that death can't hold him, that he predicted three times that he would die and precisely be raised three days later, that he died and he got up out of the grave, there is great reason to be afraid. Why is that fear legitimate? The same Jesus is spoken of in Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The first question you must answer is, who will reconcile you to God to avoid that judgment? There's a second question you must answer Who will take away your fear? Who will take away your fear? Verse 3 again, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. The stone is rolled back to demonstrate that Jesus has conquered death. He wasn't there. The women entered the tomb. They saw the evidence that Jesus wasn't there. By the way, the other Gospels tell us that his grave clothes were there. So it couldn't be that he was carried off. The narrative has the angel and has the women. They've all entered the tomb and Jesus didn't need any of their help. Jesus said in John 10, 17 and 18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Who raised Jesus from the dead? He did. Who does that? Only God. Jesus needed no help. But you, on the other hand, at some point, unless Christ returns first, you will take a final breath. Your heart will have a final beat. Your brain waves will cease. Your body will be sent to a mortuary. The blood will be drained from your body. Your eyelids will be glued shut. Your lips sewn closed. You will be placed in a casket, some more expensive than others, but all the same size. People will come and look at your body and the casket will be closed and sealed. And the casket will be placed over a hole in the ground and if you've paid extra money, the hole in the ground will have a concrete vault around it. People will come and look at the closed casket and depending on different traditions, either at that time or when all the people are gone, your body will be lowered into the vault The vault closed, sealed, dirt placed over it, and if it weren't for a marker, no one would eventually even know where your body is. And now you have a problem. Your spirit will have been separated from your body, and your body will quickly decay and rot. You will be completely helpless. You need someone to raise you from the dead. In perfection, clean and righteous before a holy God. And that brings us to a third question you must answer. Who will roll away your stone and who will enter your tomb? Who will roll away your stone? Who's coming for you? I've given you these three questions. Who will reconcile you to God? Who will take away your fear? Who will roll away your stone and enter your tomb? We've already said the answer to all three questions. We've already said, I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Question number one. Who will reconcile you to God? Who will make your sins white and clean? Isaiah 118. God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The Gospel of Mark begins and ends with a messenger who comes on Christ's behalf. And the clothing of both messengers is described. And it tells the story. John the Baptist came at the beginning saying the Savior is coming. Mark 1, 6, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. This is a picture of filth, the dirt of, of sin. And nobody goes to the store and says, I would like clothing made of camel's hair, please. And at the end, an angel comes saying, the Savior has come. Go to him. The angel is wearing a white robe of glory, the clothing of the glorified for the saved person, the glory and the clothing of the redeemed. Verse 7, the angel says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Peter is the first disciple mentioned in Mark, Mark 1.16, and the last, Mark 16.7. This is a special nod to Peter as a testimony of God's grace. You may recall that the Gospel of Mark is in many ways the 
gospel according to Peter. It's based on Peter's teaching, his preaching, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But you recall the most important thing we all remember about Peter is that he denied Christ three times. He had looked Jesus right in the eye after the third denial. And he went out and he wept bitterly in repentance, really acknowledging for the very first time his own weakness, his own need for forgiveness. And now the angel has been given instructions to specifically single out Peter. And he provided assurance that Peter would not be rejected by the Lord, that Peter would be reconciled to God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.18, And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Who will reconcile you to God? Christ, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The second question, who will take away your fear? The fear of judgment, the fear of God's wrath, of dying in your sin. And the answer is right here in the text. Verse 6, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Mark 5, Jesus told a religious leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. As a matter of fact, Jesus gave a promise to those who love him, those who have repented of sin and fallen on their knees humbly before him. Here's the promise he gave. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why? Because he who would have been your judge, a terrifying prospect, has now become your savior and your king and, yes, your friend. And the third question, who will roll away your stone and enter your tomb? Well, Jesus made it pretty clear in John eleven twenty five. He said, he didn't just say, I'll provide resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. What's that going to look like? When you've been buried and and if somebody comes by and steals your grave marker and nobody even knows where you are and three or four generations from now, nobody even remembers that you lived. What does it look like that Jesus remembers? 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, The Lord himself, that is Christ, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. One of the things I love about doing graveside services is I like to say that this will be the most exciting place to be during the resurrection. Because for every believer in Christ, these graves are going to be blown open. When the women saw the angel... The angel doesn't just say, Jesus is risen. Isn't that special? He said, but go. See, the knowledge of the death and the resurrection of Christ demands action. Demands action. One scholar wrote this. Many will hear news during Easter Sunday worship that Jesus has been raised and will sing hymns praising God. All too many of them will then go home quietly and go back to the routine of their lives, unaffected by the news. They are neither filled with awe nor compelled to tell anyone about what they now know. Now just a little note here, verse 8 is the end of the Gospel of Mark. Verses 9 through 20 are mostly borrowed from other Gospels and were added later by copyists of the manuscripts. You probably have... Verses 9 through 20 in double brackets. It means it's not there. 
little interesting note here. The Gospel of Mark is the only gospel that doesn't give a meeting, an account of the meeting with the resurrected Jesus. It ends on this abrupt note of afraid. It's probably why copyists felt like they needed to add an extra ending. They felt like, well, that's a terrible ending to a gospel. But it's the perfect ending. Because ultimately, the gospel of Mark leaves the reader with the necessity of believing. In other words, you must believe based on the same amount of evidence that these women had. You do not come to saving faith in Christ because of convincing proofs of the resurrection, although there are many, but you come rather by faith. And like these women, the person considering the gospel of Christ approaches the fact of the resurrection with fear, with awe, with shock. The resurrection of Christ is shocking. Because to pay for your sin and mine, a perfect man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, he had to die. And we enumerated the, the details of his death Friday evening. It was horrifying. It's sickening. It's, 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 it's more than we can comprehend. He didn't just have to die. He, he had to die a cruel death. But more than that, he had to be a perfect sacrifice. And there's only one way we would know he's a perfect sacrifice. And that is when the check clears, so to speak. The payment to the wrath of God is complete. How do we know that payment had been made in full? Because he was raised from the dead. Payment is made. Not only did he make payment, but he had to conquer death. This is unheard of, but it's very comforting to us. I don't know about you, but the idea of dying is not the most pleasant thought in my daily routine. I don't wake up every morning and say, Lord, I hope this is the day I die. I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not excited about some of the methods by which that might happen. But isn't it comforting that the one we have trusted in is the only person in all of history who has successfully conquered death, who literally walked out of his own grave? That's the man I'm going to follow. Every single person must answer these questions. Who will reconcile you to God? Who will take away your fear? And who will roll away your stone and enter your tomb? If your answer is anything other than Jesus Christ, then judgment is upon you. And not believing it won't make it any less true. Try believing that the sun won't come up tomorrow. It's still coming up. But if your answer is Jesus then you're saying yes to the kind invitation Jesus himself gave in Matthew 11. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. If your answer is Jesus, then you're in the company of those that Paul identified in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Can I put it this way? For the one who knows Christ as Savior, your body going to the morgue is the best news you could get. I wouldn't want to be the 24-year-old man in Kenya suddenly jumping up. That would be hugely disappointing. 
Your body going to the morgue is the best news ever. It means your victory is complete. You're with the Lord awaiting your own glorious resurrection. What did the Apostle Paul say? He said that to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. With the the sure and certain promise of resurrection because you're following the man who's already done it. The church often uses, they call it Easter Sunday. I don't like that term. It's frankly a pagan term, but we won't say that too loudly. Resurrection Sunday, but they use Easter Sunday as the biggest marketing day of the year. Let's grow the church on Easter. Let's, uh, let's give out backpacks and have our Easter egg hunts and let's do all of those things. And Easter has become the number one marketing tool of the church to attract people to church. Thank you for being here today, but could I tell you something? I, I couldn't care less about attracting you to church because church can't save you. Matthew chapter 7 the Lord Jesus Christ himself affirms that there will be many people who says, Lord, Lord, did we not, and I'm paraphrasing, do lots of churchy things our whole lives. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. I couldn't care less about attracting you to church. I want you to know Christ. And in a room with this many people in it, there's no possible way that every one of you knows Christ. Jesus promised that in the church, the tares will grow up with the wheat and they'll look alike. The weeds will grow up with the good crops. And so I'm not here this morning to promote Grace Bible Church. During the Great Tribulation, our building here and our new one on White Lane probably be hit by a hundred pound hailstone. That'll be fine. Not here to attract you to church. I, I just want to plead Christ to you. There may be some of you here in this room or listening to this recording that this is the only time all year long that you've set foot in a church building, if we can call it that. I hope this is the day that you are afraid of Christ because he is one who has conquered death and he will conquer you. One of two ways. He will conquer you by his love and his grace if you submit to him or he will conquer you at judgment. But you will be conquered. I pray it's by His grace. I pray it's by your fear turning to joy. That's our prayer for you. And and if you want to come to Grace Bible Church, we'd love that. But we're not trying to attract you to church, just to Christ, Christ alone. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for this time of celebration that we've had. Lord, what a joy to consider our Savior, our Lord, our wondrous Master. And whether or not anyone believes that Jesus is raised from the dead, He is. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that fact does not depend on human logic. It does not depend on us to somehow approve of that. It is fact. And it is the singular fact with which all mankind must contend. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the answer to those three questions. Who will reconcile us to God? Who will take away our fear? Who will roll away our stone? Who will visit our tomb to save us? It is the one who rightly claimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I would pray that this day 
by your mercy and by your grace, there might be a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who would bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Savior for the first time. And that they could say with great joy that it was on Resurrection Sunday in 2022 that I came to faith. We pray that you would do this all for your glory and for your sake. Amen.